Our scripture reading this morning is uh, taken from John uh, chapter 18. Uh, Actually, after the bulletins uh, were printed, added some more to the passage. Um, So uh, what you see on the screens is going to be correct, but uh, what's in the bulletin is going to be not quite exactly uh, what I'll be preaching from. So I'm going to actually be reading from John chapter 18, uh, verses 12 uh, through 27. This is God's word. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he'd said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. Father, speak to our hearts. May your spirit visit us with your presence here this morning, Father, that as we encounter your word, uh, that it would change not only our minds and our intellect, but also our hearts and our will and our behavior. So meet us powerfully here this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of my uh, favorite uh, World War II movies uh, is a movie that I guess is now old at this point, but it's a movie uh, called Saving Private Ryan. And uh, if you've never seen it, I'd encourage you to go see it. It's uh, a a movie that has a great story and has uh, a lot of emotion to it. Uh, But there's one scene that I always fast forward whenever I watch the movie, or I at least have to turn it off and come back to it. And it's a scene uh, towards the end of the movie that centers around one particular soldier in this company. And what you learn all throughout the movie is that this particular soldier, unlike all the other men he's fighting alongside, is, is captured by fear. I mean, he's scared to death everywhere he goes. And there's a one point in the movie when they're in a, a very intense firefight with the Germans, 
that they focus on this soldier who's standing in, the, in a corner, really cowering in the corner, afraid, refusing to fight. And what's so gut-wrenching about this scene is that one of his company men, one of the soldiers around him, die as a result of his cowardice. And I can't stand to watch it. I have to fast forward it every time because it angers me so much at this man's cowardice. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, we culturally celebrate bravery and we really dislike cowardice. And it's why I don't like that movie. We celebrate those who are willing to step in, willing to, to sacrifice themselves, those who are brave, those who are heroic, those people who stand by conviction. And we tend to really dislike or disregard people that are captured by fear and cowardice. Just look at what's happened recently in the news. We've, of course, tragically seen uh, two different school shootings in just a matter of two or three weeks. And, of course, many marched on Washington as a result of it yesterday. But if you paid attention to the news, you noticed that in one of those school shootings, a, a school resource officer was found on video running away from the scene in fear. And yet just weeks later, we saw another school resource officer running towards the problem rather than running away from it. Cowardice in our culture is loathsome, but bravery or conviction is celebrated. And often we who are left to watch wonder how we would stack up if we were put in those situations. Well, the gospel writer John in this passage sets up a comparison just like I alluded to. He sets up a comparison between cowardice and conviction. And what he does is he he cuts between two different scenes that are two different interrogations. And the first that we're going to look at is the interrogation that came to Peter. And you see it in verses 15 to 18 and then again in verses 25 to to 27. The context is really important here. Jesus has been arrested after his night in Gethsemane, uh, and he is taken to the court of the high priest. And the high priest had a very rich uh, religious history uh, for the Jewish people, uh, for for the Israelite people. Uh, But in Jesus's day, this history had taken on a different meaning. What was once a very religious office of high priest had now become um, just a political office. And so the high priest for the Jews was the highest ranking or the supreme official for the Jewish people. And what John tells us is Jesus is initially brought into the court of Annas. Annas had been the high priest for, for 25 years. He had recently given that office to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But Jesus goes to him first because Annas wielded the most power in the Jewish system at this point. Peter finds himself in the courtyard between two courthouses. On one side was Annas's courthouse, and on the other side was Caiaphas's courthouse. And in between was a portico that would be full of soldiers and servants and onlookers who were gathered to see what was happening this night in which Jesus was arrested. And it is in this setting that Peter faces a very informal interrogation by those who were in the courtyard. 
I have to imagine that, that if you interviewed a Peter when he was older, later in his life, and you asked him to look back and reflect on his life, I wouldn't be surprised if Peter looked back at this moment and said it was the moment of his greatest failure. Now, it isn't all bad for Peter when you think about it, uh, because Peter at least is still following Jesus. One of the things that we learned last week when we looked at John's account is after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of his disciples scattered. They all ran away, but not Peter. Peter was still choosing to follow Jesus in this moment. But when he was in that courtyard, when Jesus was being interrogated inside of those courtrooms, Peter was caught in a moment that he would live to regret. When you think about it, we've all been, we've all been caught in those moments. There are moments where it feel, we feel kind of out of body, where the words that are coming out of our mouths we can't seem to control, and, and we're disappointed when they even come out of our mouths because they don't reflect the intention of our hearts. And Peter is caught in one of those moments. The spotlight is on him, and when he is questioned, he wilts underneath the pressure. And John tells us that Peter in that moment denies Jesus Christ three times. The first denial was to a simple servant girl or, or a portress, one who just sat at, the, at the, the gate or the door to the home of the high priest. She wouldn't have carried a whole lot of weight in the Hebrew culture. She wasn't a person of great significance. The second denial was, was either to an officer or to another girl. So again, it was someone in that culture that didn't make a substantial amount of difference. But Mark, the gospel writer Mark, fills in even Peter's words more deeply than John does. Mark says that in Peter's second denial, Peter says this. He says, I don't know or understand what you're even talking about. The third denial comes a little bit later, and this one is at least a bit more risky because Peter denies Christ to a servant of the high priest. Now, it's interesting that Peter's even just standing here at this moment because all the people in that portico, in that courtyard, were probably the people that had just arrested Jesus. So Peter had to wonder, would he be recognized for being one who was in that garden? And of course, John tells us that one of the men instantly, one of the officers recognizes him as the one who would cut someone's ear off. So this third denial was someone that had actually identified Peter as that person who cut off someone's ear. He could could pick Peter out of a lineup even in the glow of of a little campfire that they were standing around. And the gospel writer Matthew fills out Peter's denial even more because it says this, then he, Peter, began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And so Peter, just as predicted by Jesus, denies his Savior three times before the rooster had sounded, which many people think was probably around 3 a.m. in the morning. So what made Peter do it? 
What made Peter deny Jesus Christ, whom he'd followed for three years? What was it that drove him to do this? And the simple answer is fear. Peter's heart was captured by fear. And whenever one's heart is captured by fear, it always drives away faith. As I mentioned earlier, we've been doing um, an adult formation class called When People Are Big and God is Small. And what we've discovered in that class is that so much of our behavior and our decision-making, more, whether we like to admit it or not, so much of it is driven by fear. We fear the rejection of other people, and we understand why. We instinctively know that other people can hurt us by their words and by their deeds. We've all felt the sting of that, and we want to avoid it as much as we can. And when we do, people's opinion of us often becomes too important, and we let others form our identity instead of allowing the Word of God to form it. We can call it peer pressure, we can call it codependency, we can call it whatever we want, but at the end of the day, it is fear. It is fear of others, and fear is always chasing away faith. But what fear also does is it disorders our desires. You see, in this case, Peter's fear had led him to have an inordinate desire for comfort. You see, Peter's desires were aimed in the wrong direction, and in this case, they were aimed toward comfort. Many people have have argued that we live in a hedonistic culture, and a hedonistic culture is a culture that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain. We do everything we can to maximize the pleasure and comfort of our lives, and we can do everything we can to avoid pain and difficulty. And when we live in a culture like this, it is easy for comfort and ease to be the thing that shapes our desires. When we do difficulty, sacrifice, challenge, those are all things we want to avoid as much as possible. And let me be careful here because it isn't that that comfort is necessarily a bad thing. It isn't. But it becomes unhealthy when the desire for that comfort becomes disordered or disoriented. When we elevate this pursuit of comfort over our own sense of conviction. You see, both fear of man and the disordered desire for comfort can get in the way of true discipleship. The, the, the gospel writer John here uses the word disciple in this passage more than any other word, and what he's trying to show us is that a, dis, a disciple of Christ is one who does not get captured by fear or is driven by the desire for comfort. Instead, a disciple is one who follows, even when the road gets difficult and perhaps even when the road gets dangerous. A disciple is one whose wills and will and desire are subject to the person in which they are following. So friends, one thing becomes very crystal clear about the message of the gospel and about this, what the gospel writers are telling us here, and that is, is that if you are looking for Christianity to bring comfort, 
you may be looking in the wrong place. Christ never, ever promises a life that is comfortable. He never promises a life in which you will please everyone and and everyone will have the best of opinion about you. In fact, the gospel probably promises the reverse or the opposite. The gospel path, a disciple of Jesus Christ, that path is a path of service, it's a path of sacrifice, and many times it is a path of discomfort. And when we walk on that path, it will feel very countercultural. Because as disciples of Christ, we are called to follow him wherever he leads. But also, as disciples of Christ, we daily feel the temptation to do exactly what Peter did. We daily feel the temptation to be captured by fear. We daily feel feel the temptation to be captured by the desire for comfort. And when we give in, that comfort becomes more important to us than conviction. Friends, any time we live for our own glory instead of the glory of God, we deny Christ. Every time we live for another person's approval over God's approval, we deny Christ. Every time we pursue the gospel of comfort rather than the true gospel, we deny Christ. Every time we claim to be a Christ follower and yet instead define ourselves more by the values of the world around us, we deny Christ with our lives. You see, Peter may have denied Christ three times in our story, but if you're like me and you look honestly at your heart, we have to come to terms with the fact that we deny Christ daily. Luke chapter 22 tells us that That as Jesus was being transferred from one court, from the court of Annas to the court of Caiaphas, Luke tells us that for a split second he looked up and he gazed at Peter. Now, we don't know what Christ's eyes said in that moment. It doesn't tell us what uh, his expression was towards Peter. But we do know that Christ had to feel the sting of this betrayal, despite the fact that he knew it was going to happen. In, in eight, or 1986, uh, a man named Michael Moore, uh, Morton, sorry, Michael Morton was a, a, a grocery store clerk and uh, received a phone call when he was at the grocery store uh, and learned that his wife had been murdered. And to his greater surprise, the next day, he learned that, that he was the prime suspect in his wife's murder. And over a six-month period, uh, he was arrested and later was imprisoned for 25 years until a DNA test overturned his conviction. He's become an advocate for uh, things like the Innocence Mission and, and all sorts of other um, uh, uh, folks that work with Innocence Mission and all that, and uh, he, uh, he uh, talks about his story all the time. And, and what he says about his story is that he went through a lot of difficult things. 25 years in prison were, were incredibly difficult things, but he said that the worst part of the whole thing was during the trial when his friends and his family 
one by one, turned their back on him, believing that he was guilty. And at the end of the day, the thing that stung the most was when his very own son started to look on him as a murderer. And he felt that sting deeper than anything else he had ever suffered. You see, friends, Jesus had spent three years of his life with each one of these men. And almost all of them had fled from him in the last moments of his life. And even though Peter remained, Peter denied the Savior he had come to love. And Mark tells us that captured by fear and regret and guilt, Peter, at the end of his denials, broke down and wept in a corner. Peter wasn't the only one who was being interrogated that day, and the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was also facing his own interrogation as well. But unlike Peter, Jesus wasn't uh, being interrogated by just common servants. He was being interrogated by the most important men in Jerusalem. These men had significant and serious power. And all the gospel writers tell this story about a mock trial that was done in the cover of darkness. But what every one of the gospel writers tell us is that Jesus, in spite of this mock trial, remained resolved. He says plainly who he is to these men. He tells them plainly why he came into this world. And the gospel writers tell us that he is beaten and mocked for it as he is consistently led down the path that would lead to his own destruction. You see, the disciples had disowned Christ by their flight. Out of fear and a desire for comfort, Peter disowned Christ by his denial, but Jesus instead owned who he was and why he had come, even though he knew it would lead to his execution. The one who was innocent would stand as one who had transgressed. And this is, friends, the great reversal, the upending, the the counterintuitive nature of the message of the gospel, that he who was innocent was numbered as one who had transgressed. And the same question persists, what made him do it? We know that Peter, in the midst of fear and discomfort, led to Jesus' denial, but what motivated Peter to stand up in the face of interrogation? And the thing that the gospel tells us is the thing that stood him up, the thing that resolved him in the midst of his conviction was love. In love, he allowed himself to be falsely accused and betrayed, denied, and arrested. Love made him suffer through a mock trial and unjust beatings. Love was the thing that carried him to the cross. In love, he sacrificed himself for you and for me. He sacrificed himself for people who he knew would deny him daily. He sacrificed himself for disciples who desire the wrong things and betray him daily. He sacrificed himself for people who disown him every day in their thoughts and in their words and in their deeds. 
And instead, Jesus stood. He stood with full conviction before the full wrath of God so that you and I, deniers, people like us, could experience forgiveness and peace. You see, the office of high priest was established thousands of years before this episode. The office of high priest was established as an office of one who would intercede before God on behalf of the people. By Jesus' day, this office had taken a different turn. It was a political turn. It was something very different than what it was originally imagined. But if you fast forward to the book of Hebrews, it tells us something substantial. It tells us that Jesus is our ultimate and great high priest. It tells us that he stands for us in the heavenly court, that he longs to make intercession for us, that he owns you as his beloved. Even now, he stands before the Father interceding and pleading for us. And what that means is that when anyone comes to accuse us, When our sense of guilt, when our sin, when our conscience accuses us, when our doubts and our denials spring up and they accuse us, that Jesus steps up, that he stands before the Father and he says, that one is mine. He is mine. She is mine. I own him. I own her. I imagine it like a parent of a toddler when that toddler is kicking and screaming against their parent and yet their parent still holds them tightly in the embrace of love. I think about the parent of teenager who maybe is consistently told by their teenager that they now hate them and yet the parent still deeply loves them. Jesus is like that proud parent who cheers on the sidelines or at the school play because Jesus in joy loves us to the very end. Hebrews Hebrews tells us that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always loves and lives to make intercession for them. Friends, Jesus is our great high priest. He came in time and space and history for us. He came to do the very thing that we could not do. He came to make a way, even for those who would deny and betray him daily. His conviction led to his death so that you and I could experience life. And friends, that is good news. Let's pray.